Um, we're going to hear from Sarah Chase, who is the Client Services Director at Life Choice. Some of you may not know her. She works with someone you do know who is five days into motherhood. So pray for, pray for them. Uh, they're home now. Um, yeah, so it's pretty exciting. But anyway, she's going to come and uh, give you a brief report on Life Choice. And uh, hopefully you want to know more after she talks, those of you who may not be as familiar with it as others, okay? So Sarah, welcome. Well, hi, I'm Sarah. And I know you're used to seeing Lauren, who we already miss very much. Um, but I was really excited to be able to come in and meet all of you because I feel like I know most of you. You guys are such huge supporters of Life Choice, so I get to meet um, your members one-on-one -on -one and work with them on a weekly basis. So, at Life Choice, we offer free pregnancy tests, free ultrasounds, options education, and parenting classes. I'm going to be reading, so. <laughs> um, because we're pro-life, we're also pro-information. We see that when women have all of the facts, they are more likely to choose life. And our statistics reflect that. So in the last 12 months, we have seen a 20% increase in clients. And I believe that is due to the closing of Planned Parenthood's doors. So with our new clients, we have had 100 abortion-minded and abortion-vulnerable clients. And of those 100, 96 of them came to their ultrasound appointment. One of those women left our doors undecided. And 95 of those women chose life. Yes, so that is 95 out of 96 women. Yes, it's amazing. It's amazing. So the reason that they choose life is because they see the truth. In the ultrasound, it's really hard to deny that truth. So with that, though, we are beginning to see a shift in our culture in that because of the scientific realities of fetal development are so glaring, more women are having abortions believing that they are ending their child's life. But that is somehow less cruel than allowing the child to live a life where they may be unloved, unwanted, or a life of pain. So we need your prayer for that as we learn how to connect with women that have those beliefs and still show them the good that is in life. So... The good news is we have the good news, and we are able to share with clients the abundant life that is in Christ, no matter what their circumstances. So in doing this, we want to move forward towards um, working with male clients, the fathers of these babies. At a recent pregnancy center um, conference that we went to, we heard a phrase that kind of opened our eyes. Reach the mother, save the baby. Reach the father, save the family. And we know that fathers have the largest impact on the mother's pregnancy decision. So you can pray for us as we work on what that would look like for life choice and for our community. How can we reach these fathers that really need Christ's love as much as the mothers? So with our increase in clients, we've also had an interesting opportunity to be able to reach out to people who are part of the LGBT community. And um, that just gives us an opportunity to model Christ's love to women who may have different perceptions about who Jesus really is, who don't know how good our Heavenly Father is, and that his commands for us bring life and not death. We have also been able to come alongside 
um, families who are here from China researching and finding solutions for our citrus problem. They're starting families here, and they've become a significant part of life choice. Many of them are taking our parenting classes, and they've expressed great appreciation for our ministry and have also expressed interest in the God of the Bible and are asking a lot of questions, which has been exciting for us. So I've personally, that excites me because I always wanted to be a missionary to China as a child, and now China's coming to us. So, <laughs> so I share all this with you to thank you for the support of Redeemer's finances, time, and prayer. It takes $12,000 per month to operate, and our 20% increase in clients has put a strain on our budget. So while one-time gifts are needed and very much valued, we would like you to consider being monthly giving partners. So if you have any questions about that, you could visit our website, you could talk to me personally, or you can give us a call and we'd be happy to help you get that set up. We also are in need of volunteers who are willing to meet with these men and women who are in just a critical point in their lives. And our volunteers help them to make a decision that is life-affirming. And we see that... <laughs> As weak as we are, God is using us, and um, women's lives are being changed, and babies are being saved and given the opportunity to know Christ themselves. So I want to close with this story. I spoke with a client who went to Planned Parenthood before it closed, and she and her husband really were really excited to be pregnant. They just went to get a proof of pregnancy so that they could get under prenatal care. The woman that they met with told them that they should look into abortion as a better option for them. She said, if you had an abortion at this point, your baby wouldn't feel anything. The mother and father were shocked and they were angered. And the message that they received was, your baby does not have value. You cannot do it. You don't have what it takes to parent. And this to me is so far from the truth. And this ideology just goes against the very message of the pro-abortion position of empowering women. At Life Choice, we believe three things. We believe that every person has value and worth. We believe in helping others. And we believe in second chances. This is the life-giving message of the gospel. And this is our only source of hope. So thank you for your support. That's wonderful. Do you need volunteers? How many? Four? Okay, we need four more. I see a lot of hands in laps. That's good. Yeah, that's great. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, I promise we're going to be out of here by 9 o'clock, right? Good. I'm going to get in trouble if I don't. So um, would you turn with me to the Bible again, to Genesis chapter 12. What we're going to do this weekend, today and tomorrow, is just try to talk about how the Bible develops the story of what it means to be on mission. And we started off by talk, talking about how it began in the beginning. That's how essential it is. First time God ever talked about us. Now we're going to look at a very important person's life, this is on page 8 in the Bibles in front of you. A man whose name was called Abram. Genesis chapter one, 12, verse 1. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and, I, and him who dishonors you or I, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's pray again. Lord Jesus, these are words that were spoken to our father Abraham thousands of years ago. But we turn to you because we call no one our teacher but you. So please, Lord Jesus, send Holy Spirit to us that we may hear your word and obey. Amen. I wanted to play basketball in high school really bad. And that was pretty good. But to play basketball, you had to run track first. And I was not very good at that. And I can remember um, the coach watching me as I would do long distance running and that sort of thing. And then we had our first sort of preseason track meet. And he stuck me on the relay team. I don't know if you know this or not, but that's where you put your slow people, on the relay team. And you know where you put your slowest person? It's in the middle of the relay team, okay? So I was number two, which meant I was like the loser, okay? And again, it's a pre-season pre, pre meet, and so he just, he just says, Rich, this is not that hard. You just two things you have to do. Okay, coach, I can do it. He said, first thing is you have to run just as fast as you can. I say, great, I can do that, run as fast as I can. And the second thing he said was this. He said, don't drop the baton. Well, you know what happened. Okay? I took it, I got it, and I ran as fast as I could, but as I was handing it off, I dropped it. He didn't say a word to me. He just looked at me like this. He said, that was the end of my basketball career. And I became a preacher instead. Just terrible. But I think you understand that if you're in a relay race, one of the most important things you have to keep in mind is that you're not going to drop the baton. And the passage we just read is about a relay race. Because the mission that was first given to Adam and Eve is like this baton, and it's now being handed to somebody else. And that somebody else was Abraham, who was the father of Israel. Because Abraham and Israel are like the A-team of the human race. Hannibal, Mr. T, all that. That's who they are. They're like the first string team. Not because they were that special. It's just because God loved them that much. Don't ask me why. I don't know. Just did. And basically, Adam and Eve and their children hand the baton to Abraham. And this is the passage where Abraham's getting the baton. And in this passage, in effect, what God says to Abraham is, Abraham, run as fast as you can and don't drop the baton because you're just part of something that's much bigger than you, something that goes from generation to generation to generation. Don't drop the baton. Now, he doesn't say those words in this passage, but when we look and see what he did say, I think you'll be able to see that that is what God was saying to him because Abraham is going to be told some things in this passage that's enough to shake anybody up. And it's enough to make all of us wonder, you know, I call myself a follower of Jesus, but am I dropping the baton? Because we're on this mission. And the mission's been handed to us, and we're to be moving it forward. 
Don't drop the baton. The way God said that to Abraham was this. He said many different things in this passage, but I just want us to focus on a few of them. Um, The first thing I want us to focus on is this, that God says to Abraham, Abraham, if you want to be my man, if you want to be my A-team, if you want to run this relay race and not drop the baton, then you're going to have to figure something out. Once and for all, in whom are you going to put your trust? What are you going to trust more than anything else, Abraham? You know he said that, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abraham lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. We know where that place was. It's in the lower lower Tigris-Euphrates plains. In fact, if you um, had friends or if you yourself were in Iraq in recent wars, then you know we actually know where these places were, around 2000 B.C. A lot of times we think, as Christians, I guess we get it from Sunday school books and things like that, that at this stage in his life that Abraham was like a wandering pilgrim, like an ancient Bedouin or something. And I don't know if you've been around Bedouins, but I have in Jordan. And they, um, you know, there's something about Bedouins. They normally have these big tents, and they're most usually Muslim, and so they'll have lots of children, lots of wives, and lots of goats and things like that. And today they have Nissan pickup trucks behind the tent with a satellite dish. Well, Abraham certainly did not have that, okay? But a lot of people think that's the way Abraham was, and you know what that meant. That meant that, like Bedouins today, they move around a lot. And the reason for that's obvious. There's no grass, not much grass, not much water, so you've got to keep on the move. Well, if Abraham was that kind of man, then it was no big deal that God said to him, get up and go. He was going to get up and go anyway. But when you read the Bible, what you discover is Abraham lived in a city called Ur of the Chaldeans. And it was one of about five to seven cities in that lower Tigris-Euphrates plain. And they were magnificent cities in 2000 B.C. 2000 B.C. They had running water in the middle class homes. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And if Jewish tradition is right that Abraham's father was an idol maker, that meant they traded in silver and gold. And he had lots of money. And in fact, when you read the story of Abraham and see how many servants he had, how many camels he bought and all those kinds of things, he was, as we say in the South, well-heeled, high class. Now you understand it's a big deal when God says, get up and leave your family, your kindred, your household, and go to the land I will show you. It meant that God was saying to Abraham, Abraham, you know everything your mother ever told you was important? you got to let it go. Everything your father told you was significant for your life. you got to let it go. Everything that provides safety and security for you, you got to let it go if you don't want to drop the baton. And if that were not enough, did you notice at the end of verse 1 what God says to him? He says, and go to the land I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. It's not until about verse 6 that God says, okay, you're here now. It's called Canaan. It's yours. I mean, think about it this way. If tonight, after we're finished, I pull up in my van that I rented to come down here because my car's too old to drive this far. If if, If I pull up in my van and open that door, you know, hit the button and big doors like that on the sides, really nice. I've done it like a dozen times. 
you know, and, you, and I, I drive up next to you and I say, come on, let's take a ride. What are you going to say to me? Where are we going to go? And if I just smile at you and say, oh, don't worry about that. You'll know when we get there. <laughs> You'd be a fool to get in the car with me. Because you don't know how many pastors and preachers are axe murderers. You could end up down in the Everglades, 15 pieces. Right? So you'd be crazy to get in the car with me. But I can tell you this. There are three children in Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, who if tonight I drove into their driveway, they would fight to get in the car with me. They wouldn't ask their parents if they could. They'd fight over who gets to ride in the front seat. And they wouldn't even care where we're going because they'd be going with me. Now, you know who they are probably. They're my grandchildren. So what's the difference between you and my grandchildren? That you'd be a fool to get in the car with me, but it's just natural for them to want to get in the car with me more than anything else. They know me and you don't. That's the difference. They know me and you don't. You can't trust someone you don't know. Now, I don't mean by that that they know me as abuelito, some theoretical thing. That's not what I have in mind here. Oh, he's our grandfather. I guess we have to respect him. No, no, no. The way they know me is that when troubles have come, and boy, have they come, somebody shows up and fixes it. When somebody gets really sick and they've gotten really sick, somebody shows up and takes care of it. And Because that's happened over all these years, they don't even hesitate to get in the car with me. So how do you ever get that kind of trust with God? It's kind of trust that you say, okay, I'm willing to let everything go and go where you want me to go and do what you want me to do. I'm ready to take a risk. How do you ever do that? It's not by believing in God as some big theory. It's only by experiencing God that you can have that. I mean, you have to have experiences in your life where you just are... You're at a loss. You just don't know what to do. And he shows up. So maybe it's been a while since that's happened to you. I'm not going to ask you to go marching off to some other country or something like that. That's not the way to get at this. But let me suggest this to you. That maybe if you want to be the kind of person that doesn't drop the baton, you really want to be able to trust God, then maybe it's time for you to take just a little, just a little risk. Something's outside of your comfort. Something that makes you feel uncomfortable. And you do it for Jesus. And watch out. Because he'll show up. And that will give you the ability to trust him more. And you'll be able to do something a little bit bigger. And he'll show up again. I mean, that involves things like what you do with your money. It involves things like, what, go to the pregnancy center? I don't know that I could be comfortable doing that. Who cares about whether you're comfortable? She, did you hear what she just said to us tonight? She's gone now, so we can talk about her. <laughs> did, you, did you hear what she said tonight? She said they need four more volunteers. Now, are you telling me that you really don't have the time to do that? Of course it's awkward. Of course you don't know what to say. That's what I'm talking about. 
take a little risk. Take a little trip to Canaan. He will show up and you will be amazed at what he will do with you. You know that next door neighbor that you've ignored? Remember that person? The new family that moved across the street that doesn't look like you and doesn't talk like you? You know those people? I live in a gated community in Orlando and there's nobody like us in our whole neighborhood. It's the weirdest thing in the world. You, would, you drive in, you think, well, this is like leave it to beaver, surely. There's no leave it to beavers there. No Ozzie and Harriet there. We're the only ones like that. Okay, so what does that mean? That means it's very difficult to talk to your neighbors anymore. For many of you, that's just a hard thing to do. In my neighborhood, the only way you can tell who's a Christian is they smile as they're hitting the garage door button to get in as fast as they can. You know, the unbelievers are like, you know, we're all, is it open yet? Is it open yet? I don't want to have to keep smiling. My face is going to crack because I don't want to talk to them any more than you want to talk to the people that live around you. So take a risk. And the next time you have a Super Bowl party at your house, don't just invite your cronies here from church. Next time you have a barbecue in your backyard, do something that practically no one does anymore. Invite your next door neighbor to come over and eat. You don't have to say in Jesus' name or anything like that. All you have to do is just be nice to them. And they'll wonder why you're so nice. It's the truth. You want to be the kind of person that knows how to trust God, you've got to risk something and see him show up. Abraham, you don't want to drop the baton. And what you've got to do is figure it out once and for all. Don't trust the things that the world tells you to trust. Trust me. But God says something else to him in this passage. And it's this. Abraham, you want to be in this relay race called the kingdom of God, the mission? Then you're going to have to have your expectations straightened out. Expectations you have for this life. Listen to what he says in verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Well, I'll tell you something. If Abraham was anything like you and me, he thought that was a good deal. All I've got to do is take a little trip, and when God finally shows me where I'm going to be, then he's going to make me into a great nation. Yeah, I'm leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, big city over there, but he's going to make me into this empire. Oh, yeah, I've got a good rep in Ur of the Chaldeans. My daddy made idols over there, but he's now going to make my name really great. And he's going to bless me, which basically means he's going to make me rich have money, but I'm going to get more out of this. Good deal. Sounds great to me, too. But let me ask you this question. Um, how many legitimate heirs did Abraham ever have? Well, he had one baby. He had one, and God said, no. <laughs> he had another one, and God said, give him back, right? And then he has some others later on. They're all a bunch of troublemakers. There was one of them. You with me on this? That's right. Abraham, what's his son's name? 
Isaac, that's right. A great empire. His whole life, he had one legitimate heir. How much real estate did Abraham ever own? A burial plot, a cave for his wife and for himself and some of his children, a couple of grandchildren. That's it. And he had to buy that from a Hittite. God said, I'm giving it to you. Yeah, great. He had to buy the thing. So how did Abraham make it his entire life and not give up when that's all he got out of life? Well, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us, chapter 11, it tells us. It says, Abraham did not set his eyes on this world. Abraham set his eyes on the celestial city. That's the city that's going to come down when Jesus comes back into the new creation. He didn't put his heart on this world. He put his, he put his expectation and his dreams and his desires in the world to come. That's how he did it. That's how he stayed on the relay team. I don't know what your daddy was like. My daddy was a, was a depression child and not depressed child. He was that too, but child of the depression. And he went into World War II when he was 15 years old and those kinds of things. Okay, so he was a man of very few words, but he was a hardworking man like a lot of the men in that generation were. Never told me once his entire life that he loved me, not once. No, oh, they crushed me. Oh, well, what can you say? But I do remember this, and when he would work double shifts on the railroad and work seven days a week and things like that, I would fuss about it because he didn't have time to take me to baseball games and things like that, eight, nine years old. And I remember one time he got so mad at me, he just sat me down and he said, Richie, Daddy, why are you working so hard? Why can't you ever be with me? And he looked at me and said, Richie, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for you so that you don't have to do this. You see, he lived his life for his children. That's, what, that's how he lived his entire life. And a lot of you know people like that who live their entire lives for their children, their grandchildren, for other people. You know people like that. That's what God is saying here too. You can't hold on to the things of this world for you. You've got to let them go for the sake of something bigger than that. I mean, if ever there were a person that was on this planet who deserved to have all his expectations to met, all his dreams met, moment by moment by moment, you, it would have to be Jesus. I mean, he did everything just perfectly right. But how much real estate did Jesus ever own? How much money did he have in his pockets? Zero. Zero. Well, how did Jesus do it? Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that too. He says, Jesus suffered his entire life even to the point of death. And how did he do it? By setting his eyes on the glory that was beyond the cross on the world to come. But you and I so often believe that our lives are here and now. And we must grab everything we can possibly grab now. You, 
if you're as old as me, and which is very old or even close to it, then you know a reality, and that is that when you're younger, you think life is going to go on forever. And then you get older and you realize, man, that went by fast. I don't know what happened to me. We got married when we were 19. I blinked twice and I became a grandfather. It makes you not want to blink again. You know, because it's all gone. But that's the reality that we have to deal with. And the fact that we work ourselves to death to have more and more and more and more of this life. Rather than getting our expectations straight about this life and putting our hopes in the world to come. And you know what happens if you try to hold on to the things of this world and you commit yourself, let's get, you know, we got to get that next bigger house. We got to get that next newer car. You got to get that next bigger vacation. On and on it goes. Oh, it's unbelievable. But you know what happens when you think that way is it takes your eyes off of the things of Jesus takes your eyes off the mission and you drop the baton. Look, if for the sake of the kingdom of God, if for the sake of the kingdom of God, you never see Paris, just wait till you see Paris in the new world. It's going to be unbelievable. That place is ugly. You do not want to go there. (laughs) Dirty, filthy, crime-ridden, Nasty. If for the sake of the kingdom of God you don't get to see the Swiss Alps, just wait till you see the Swiss Alps in the new world. If for the sake of the kingdom of God you actually don't buy that next bigger house or that mansion up in the mountains or that chalet in the French Alps. If you get one, by the way, bring me there, okay? (laughs) If for the sake of the kingdom of God you don't do that, Just wait till you see the mansions you will have in the world to come. See, that's what we have to begin to believe again. Because what you and I have done is we've actually bought into what everybody else around us is doing. And that is accumulating just as much as we possibly can, finding as much security, as much safety as we possibly can in the things of this world. And when you do that, you take your eyes off the goal. And when you do that, you drop the baton. You know what happens when you drop the baton? God sets you to the side and the kingdom of God goes on without you. You really don't want that to happen. Because great will be your reward in the kingdom of heaven. So God says to Abraham, Abraham, you've got to figure out in whom you're going to put your trust. Me. Nothing else. Abraham, you've got to get your expectations straight. I know it sounds all really good, but... It's not going to be that good until the next world. But then there's a third thing that Abraham is told here. It's in verse 3. Listen to what he says. At the end of verse 2, he says, So you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A lot of us has heard the end of verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's quoted in the New Testament. That's how I know you know it. You call it the New Testament. I'm an Old Testament professor. I call it the end notes. Okay? That's okay. Paul tells us that this 
word from God is fulfilled magnificently in the way that Jesus opened up the kingdom of God to Gentiles like you and me. And God says to Abraham here, Abraham, you need to figure out something here. What's that? Not just who you're going to trust, not just your expectations about this world, but why did I choose you? What's your purpose? Why? What are you supposed to do with all of this? His answer is, uh, you're supposed to be taking the things that I have given you in this world and become a conduit of blessings to other people. It's why you're here. It's what you're to be doing. Think about it this way. 2000 B.C., what were your ancestors doing in 2000 B.C.? Unless you're Jewish, I can tell you what they were doing. They were pagans, pagan dogs. They were pillaging, stealing, and robbing, and raping, and torturing. Some of your ancestors even cannibals. In 2000 B.C., Abraham was worshiping the God of heaven and earth, and your and my ancestors were absolute pagans, haters of God, the enemies of God, condemned by a righteous God for all that they were doing to his work. But now look at us. Here we are 4,000 years later in a land that Abraham did not even know existed. And we are a bunch of pagans in this room, and we are worshiping the God of Abraham. Isn't that just unbelievable? And that the religion of Abraham has spread to the ends of the earth. How did that happen? It's because Abraham got the message. I didn't give you your religion for you. I didn't choose you for you. I didn't teach you the Bible for you. I didn't give you your church for you. I gave you all these things for others. You know you have an absolutely unbelievable facility here. Do you know that? For those of you that don't come from the old covenant church, thank you, covenant people. Okay? It's a magnificent building. I was here 100 years ago. Were you here? Okay. Everybody was asleep. Who was that? Was there somebody special there that week? Yeah, it was me. But for those of you that weren't there, what a gift you have been given in this building. Just that simple thing, this building. And do you know how easy it is for you to think that this building is your church? What's that over there? That's my church. No, it's not. It's Winter Haven's church. This building has been given to you for the sake of others. And this building must be used not for you, but for them. It's really that simple. That's what God is telling Abraham. Yes, they'll mess it up. Yes, they'll take matching markers and write on the walls and things. It won't be as nice. The carpet will wear out faster, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. But that's exactly the idea. It's not for you. It's for others. Remember how I told you about my father? I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing this for you, Rich. Abraham got the message, and all his life he was interacting with people, telling them about the Lord. But it wasn't just Abraham. It was his children who did the same thing, and their children, and their children, and their children after them. 
our apostles received this word from Jesus and they sacrificed their lives. They died for the sake of spreading the blessings of God to other people. And it wasn't just the apostles, but generation after generations of Christians have done this over and over again. They have given their very lives for the sake of getting the word of Jesus to other people. But I'm afraid to say that my generation of American Christians, my generation, is probably the first generation that received the blessings of God, salvation from God, and have kept it for themselves. Now, that's just the reality of it. We're much more interested in enjoying the things that God has given us than we are of sharing them with others. So, look, I don't care how big your house is. I hope it's a great big house. I hope you have one here. I hope you have one up in the mountains of North Carolina. That'd be great, too. I hope you have that French chalet. I hope you invite me. It really doesn't matter how many houses you have or how big they are. The only question is... How are, how are you using them for the sake of the kingdom of God? That's it. I hope you have a huge bank account. I hope you are so wealthy you never have to even think about how much money you're spending. Wouldn't that, that's great. Thank God if that's where you are. It's not a matter of how much money or how little money you have. It's a matter of how are you using the money you have to be a blessing to the world around you. I hope that after all these years, you still love each other so much you can hardly stand it. It would be unusual. <laughs> but I hope you have a little bit of that. But whatever shape your family is in, the question is, how are you using your family to be a blessing to other people? Aren't you glad someone did that to you? I am so desperately glad that someone took a risk to share the gospel with me when I was a rebellious, hair-down-to-here 17-year-old. Aren't you glad someone risked a little bit to do that for you? That they cared enough about you that they weren't going to hold this precious gift of salvation to themselves, but they were actually going to talk to you too? Well, if you know that, how can you hold back? And aren't you glad that when Jesus came to this earth, he did not live for himself, but that every moment of every day he was living for the sake of the kingdom of God to be a blessing to other people? And aren't you glad that even now that he's reigning in heaven, he's not thinking about himself, he's thinking about you. Isn't that magnificent? Well, if you believe those things, how can you possibly hold back? Abraham, you need to understand why I've given all this to you. It's not for you. It's for the world. Remember that relay race? Where the coach said to me, Richard, all you got to do is just run as fast as you can and just don't drop the baton. Well, we are close to dropping the baton. And you think that things are bad now, just wait till you see 
what it's going to be like for your children and your grandchildren. So if you care about them at all, it's time to stop dropping the baton. Hold on to that thing. Because we need something that can be passed on. And how can we get there? By figuring out where we're going to put our trust, by getting our expectations about this life straightened out, and understanding that God gave us these things not for us, but for others. We can do that. It's not that hard. All it means is believing in Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bless you and honor you. We bless you that you knew in whom you should put your trust. We bless you that you did not hold on to the things of this world, but that you longed for the world to come. We bless you. You're the kind of person who knew that your life was not for you, but for others. Holy Spirit, our sincere prayer to you tonight is that somehow you will work within us and that you will Make us the kind of people we need to be. Holy Spirit, our prayer is simple. Make us like Jesus. Don't let us drop the baton.